Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Another school year begins and COVID-19 is still with us. Connecticut's COVID positivity rate has climbed in recent weeks. It's uh, 3.5% statewide. Officials point to the more contagious Delta variant. And because of it, some towns have mandated masks indoors. But there's good news on the public health front. The Food and Drug Administration has given Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine full approval. Will this lead to more Americans getting vaccinated against COVID? We talk about that today and more with Dr. Manisha Jutani, Connecticut's incoming commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. What questions do you have for her about the FDA approval, the Delta variant, masks, or other topics? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Dr. Manisha Jutani joins us on Zoom. She's an associate professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine and of epidemiology at Yale School of Public Health. And she was nominated by Governor Lamont this summer to be the next Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. That'll be effective September 20th. And Dr. Dr. Jutani at that time will take a leave of absence from the faculty at Yale. Dr. Jutani, welcome to our show. Good to be with you, Lucy. So let's start right off and let's talk about the FDA fully approving this first ever COVID vaccine yesterday for those aged 16 and above. Uh, we've been getting a lot of questions. Uh, listener Meredith tweeted, could doctors give it off-label for kids under 12 right away? So talk about what the full approval means and if you can help answer her question as well. So first of all, this is very exciting news for those who have been sitting on the sidelines and really looking for that final, final approval from the FDA to get vaccinated. And I encourage all of those who were cautious about the emergency use authorization to really line up and get vaccinated at this point. And that would be, as you said, for people 16 and older where the final approval has been received. But of course, emergency use authorization exists for 12 and up. So to answer your question about uh, younger children, you know, those trials are really still in the works, but should be coming out very soon. And what I would say for those younger children is we really need to see what the data are going to show. I am very optimistic that the data will be positive and that we will get emergency use authorization for those 12 and younger uh, coming up soon. But at this point, I think what's most important is to get those vaccinated who are eligible and who the FDA has reviewed the data to say that it is safe and effective in those populations. A lot of anticipation that people who've been on the fence about getting the COVID vaccine until there's full approval. Um, you know, there's hope that they will now step forward and get the vaccine. But how many Americans are we talking about, Dr. Giutani? You know, I think it's hard to say. I can anecdotally say that I have heard 
people that I know, people that are patients who have said that they were waiting for the final approval to get this dose. I think time will tell in the next couple of weeks how many people get off the sidelines because of that alone. And it's really unclear at this point. I don't think we have clear data as to how many people were waiting for sure. There are reports that roughly three in 10 people who are unvaccinated have said that they would get vaccinated once they saw full approval come into effect. So if that means another 30% get vaccinated of the unvaccinated pool at this time, that would be welcome news. Uh, getting back to Meredith's, uh, again, her question about uh, could doctors give it off-label for kids under 12, the American Academy of Pediatrics advised that that not happen, that pediatricians not give off-label shots to young children. Um, Yvonne Maldonado, who's the chair of uh, the Committee on Infectious Disease, said that uh, they don't want to see individual physicians calculating doses and dosing schedules one-on-one for younger children based on the experience with vaccine in, in older patients. And, and that relates to their metabolism, right, and their mu- immune systems. What is the proper dose for children under 11? This is an incredibly important point. It is incredibly important for people to recognize that when trials are done, we come up with doses that are going to be used based on the population and the risks of that particular population. So, you know, the dose in younger children is much lower than it would be for an adult. And we want to roll out these vaccines in a safe way once we know what that tested dose was. So as we know with adult populations, we waited for those trials. And when those trials came out, we were able to have the FDA look at the results. And that is when emergency use authorization was first authorized. Now this formal approval went through even more checks and balances in terms of crossing every T and dotting every I before the final, final approval came through this time around. But all the reasons for safety and efficacy were looked at initially when we got emergency use authorization. And so, you know, I think some people have heard about patients taking ivermectin. So this is a medication, for example, that we do give to human beings for certain parasitic infections. But we've heard reports of people using doses that would be for cows and horses. And of course, this is a completely different dose for a 500 pound cow versus a human being. Not to say that it is the same situation, but the analogy exists, which is that if we just extrapolate and have pediatricians figure it out, that is really not what we want to do in this situation. Of course, it's not the same. Ivermectin has not been shown to have any benefit for COVID-19 and the vaccines have. But the point is that dosing matters extremely when it comes to children. And so I'm really looking forward to those trials to be able to then say that the FDA is able to approve and get our children vaccinated as well. If you have a question for Dr. Manisha Jutani, again, the incoming commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I'm a parent. I have a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, and I know a lot of parents uh, who are in the same boat with children uh, under 12, waiting and just hoping for uh, the trial results uh, to be reported so that their children can also get the COVID vaccine. But uh, Dr. Jutani, today on NPR's Morning Edition, host Steve Inskeep 
was speaking with Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, about the timeline. When will this be approved for children 5 to 11? This is what uh, Dr. Collins shared. So the companies, Pfizer and Moderna, are, are working hard on collecting data from rigorous trials to be sure they've got that part right. But actually, the data hasn't been submitted to FDA yet. Uh, Pfizer thinks maybe by the end of September, they'll be ready to send in their trial data. And then FDA will have to review it. I got to be honest, I don't see the approval for kids 5 to 11 uh, coming much before the end of 2021. So my stomach just dropped when I heard that this morning, uh, Dr. Giutani. I mean, how do you respond to that news that we may still be waiting until the end of the year? Well, I really feel for you, Lucy, and for all the parents whose children are under age 12, because you know, my children are 17 and 20 and both are vaccinated. And I understand how it feels to not have your children vaccinated when you so want to be able to protect them. It's our instinct as parents to be able to want to do that. But we want to do it in a safe way. And I think that timeline that Dr. Collins suggested is consistent with what we've kind of heard from the companies up until now. Um, having said that, you know, is it possible that it's a little bit earlier? It's possible, but really we need the companies and the FDA to do their job. I think the good news in all of this, though, is that children, especially the youngest, their behavior is very much controlled by their parents and the households in which they live. And so it really is possible in many ways, not completely, but in many ways for parents to be able to help keep their children in safe environments. And I think given that, it is easier for younger children in some ways than the older ones who are out and about a lot more on their own when uh, in terms of what parents can do to help keep their children safe. But, you know, in due time, we've made it this far. I know it's really tough to have to wait a little bit longer, but it is on the horizon and it will be here. So a lot of the anxiety that parents are feeling when we think about school reopening, Dr. Giutani, uh, we know that Governor Lamont's executive order on mask mandates in schools is effective through September 30th. What happens after that? Well, you know, at this point, what we know is that all school districts are going to be starting with masks in place. And I think what happens after that remains to be seen. But we do see that a number of towns have put mask mandates in place. And, you know, one thing I would just say as a parent and an observer is that many of the children are quite comfortable with their masks, especially the young ones. You know, they're, they're sort of used to just being doing what they're told to do. And so they put their mask on and they go to school and that's it. For the, uh, many of them, it's not really been that much of an inconvenience. Um, anecdotally, I've actually heard some children tell me that, uh, you know, sometimes they like being able to hide behind their mask a little bit. I've had other older children tell me if I get to be in school full time and do my activities and I just have to wear a mask, what's the big deal? So, you know, I do think that the data has shown us that masking can protect our children in these environments. And being in school is so important for them in terms of their social interactions, in terms of education. There's so many things that they've missed out on. Um, and many schools were able to do that very successfully in this past year and a half. Uh, but, you know, many were not. And it would be 
very happy news to see so many of our children ending up back in the classroom with educators where we know their learning happens best. I assume you have the ear of Governor Lamont as his incoming commissioner of Department of Health, Public Health. Uh, you're officially in that role September 20th. Um, if Governor Lamont asks you, should we have an indoor mask mandate for schools past September 30th? Based on what we know, based on your experience as a physician and as an infectious disease specialist, what will you tell him? So I believe that masking in schools is what is recommended by the CDC. It's what we know has worked. And especially for our children who are unvaccinated, as you mentioned, it's the way that we can keep them safest and most protected. So I think that regardless of what happens at the level of the governor's office or the legislature, many school districts see this information from the CDC, from what we've been able to do in this last year. And I think that that's our safest way to keep a least disrupted educational environment for our children. Because as we go forward, if especially unvaccinated children uh, end up being exposed, you know, we could, you could have potentially um, classes get shut down, other things that need to happen. And that's just going to disrupt the educational system that's happening uh, for those kids. So I think that we see what the CDC is recommending. I think that certainly for our children, uh, especially the unvaccinated ones, wearing masks is the easiest way to keep them safe. So your recommendation would be to continue to use masks indoors, especially in schools? At this point, you know, that is what the data is showing. But again, I think that we are seeing change happen all the time when it comes to this pandemic. And I think looking at what the data is at that point in time is going to be critical. What I say today is not necessarily going to hold true a month from now. And the reason I say that is, for example, we're seeing that in some of the states where the Delta variant really took off in the beginning, some of those rates are starting to stabilize. And as we all know in this pandemic, we've seen that cases really take off. At some point, they level off and either they stay at that level or they start to come down. And we just don't know what the prevalence of disease is going to be in our community because we do have very high vaccination rates. We know we have this more infectious variant, but we just don't know where things are going to be a month from now. So I think that what my advice is going to be is going to be dependent on the numbers and what the status of things are at that point in time. And if anything this virus has shown us is that we need to have humility when it comes to bugs and pathogens and viruses, because as an infectious disease doctor, I've always said the bugs are one step ahead of us. They are smarter than us. And we try to predict what's going to happen, but we learn from prior experience, and that's what then informs what we think going forward. But every variant is going to be slightly different, and we're going to have to look at what the data are in that moment in time to be able to truly make decisions at that moment. So I really honestly can't say what is going to be the status of things a month from now relative to what we know today. 
A lot of people are concerned, as you mentioned, uh, even though we're in Connecticut, we have a higher uh, vaccination rate than uh, other states like uh, Mississippi and, and Alabama. But when we think about people who have been vaccinated and are now uh, breakthrough cases, they've now uh, gotten COVID. Of course, you know, we're hearing they're not being hospitalized. So that's a good thing. We know the vaccine is working in that sense, uh, keeping them from being hospitalized and dying. But uh, when we hear about breakthrough cases, I mean, how should the state be monitoring this? So this is a very important point. And, you know, one of the things the state is doing now which is something that was just reported this week for the first time, is they are actually cross-referencing the laboratory reports of COVID-19 positivity with our vaccine immunization database. And so what this does is it can give a real-time assessment of those who were vaccinated, how many of them are testing positive for COVID. And you know, the traditional way that we've been reporting breakthrough infections, I've done this as a physician when I was working in the hospital. And if I had a patient who was vaccinated who developed COVID, we filled out a form and sent it to the Department of Public Health to note that this is a vaccinated person who actually got COVID. But rather than relying on individual doctors uh, to be able to do that, by cross-referencing these databases, we're getting a better assessment of how many breakthrough infections are happening. So it is more than what was originally being reported, but it is still in the you know thousands of the 2 million over 2 million people in the state of Connecticut who've been vaccinated. And I don't have the exact numbers, but you know somewhere around the 5,000 uh, number would be something that is in the ballpark, at least, of the number of breakthrough infections that are happening. So it is still a small number relative to the number of people that are vaccinated. And as you accurately pointed out, most of these people are doing well in the sense that they are sick. And I've had people tell me that they don't feel well, but they are staying home. They are recovering. They are not ending up in the hospital, by and large. Um, we, of course, do have um, older patients or some immunocompromised patients who have ended up in the hospital. It's a minority of those overall uh, that are ending up in the hospital for COVID. The vast majority ending up in the hospital for COVID are the unvaccinated. Again, you can join our conversation with Dr. Manisha Jutani. She's the incoming commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. The number 888-720-9677. Jackie's calling in from Hamden. Jackie, go ahead. I, excuse me. Good morning. I'm wondering about booster shots, what information you have about that, and how or whether the FDA approval yesterday will affect that, and what plans the state has for rolling out booster shots. And I can take my answer off the air. Thank you. Thanks for that question. So we know already that the most immunocompromised people who are receiving immunocompromising medications for cancer and the like have already started receiving their booster shots. So I know that over the last week, people I know have already received their booster shots and this is welcome news for that group because I think that we know that that group in particular did not respond as well to as other patients to just two doses of the mRNA vaccines. Now for other people, the Biden administration has noted that eight months after your series that boosters will be 
available and the state is making preparations to make sure that will happen. And so, you know, a lot of this information is being rolled out. I think the FDA approval for the original doses is already in place. And so, as I've said, you know, certainly we want people to get their first doses. But I think that this uh, target of eight months after your series um, of vaccinations is on target. And I think the state will be ready to be able to do that, uh, working with community health centers and, you know, our pharmacy partners and the health care systems throughout the state to make sure that we can get our patients vaccinated. Uh, before we take a break, you know, what do we know about uh, why the immunity seems to uh, fade so quickly with COVID compared to other diseases, Dr. Jutani? So, you know, I think whenever you have a new vaccine, we need the data over time to see how long it's going to be effective. And as I've said, you, you know, we have to have some humility about what this virus is capable of. I mean, in terms of its mutations and what is going to come in the future. What we know also is that these mRNA vaccines produced very robust immunity in the clinical trials. But then when you translate that into clinical practice, we see what happens in real life. And those trials were done with shorter durations of time. You know, it's only real life that's going to give us a sense of how these vaccines function over a longer period of time. And that's what we're getting a sense of and seeing. And it may be that after a booster shot, we don't need another shot for some period of time. And I think that's where we just don't know at this point, you know, in terms of how our immune system is going to work, what kind of memory there is in the body. And I think that part of the reason for that is, you know, right now we're dealing with a variant that is a thousand times more infectious than the ones we were seeing before. And if we didn't have a variant around like that, maybe we wouldn't need a booster as much because maybe our immunity and our T cells, those sort of memory cells that can come back to life and create the antibody responses that we need in real time, maybe that would be sufficient. But when you've got a variant on, you know, in the society that is that much more infectious, while we still have a significant number of people that are unvaccinated, we have enough of a population where the virus can keep jumping from host to host and stay active. And so part of this is responding to the public health situation that we've got at hand right now. And what we're doing right now may not be what we need to do a year from now, two years from now, or five years from now. Again, you're hearing Dr. Manisha Jutani, commissioner, incoming commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Public Health. She begins September 20th. She's here to answer your questions about the pandemic, the Delta variant, and concerns about other public health topics. Here's the number. If you're on the line, stay with us. We'll take your call right after the break, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. 
Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Dr. Manisha Jutani, Governor Lamont's nominee to become Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. She'll take over September 20th. Uh, Dr. Deidre Gifford, who's filled that role temporarily throughout the pandemic, will then continue to lead the State Department of Social Services and become a senior advisor to the governor. But what questions do you have for Dr. Jutani? Uh, she's here to answer those at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Jill is calling in from Enfield. Jill, what's your question? Yes, um, I have relatives that are huge anti-vaxxers, and they are 1,000% convinced that hydroxychloroquine works as a medication to treat COVID if it's used in the early stages. And I would just like you to speak to that, that rumor that keeps persistently hanging around. Thanks for that. Yeah, sorry. Thanks for that question, Jill. You know, this is such a challenging situation because at the beginning of the pandemic, as physicians, we had hopes that this medication might work. And as physicians, we need to study medications. And that was done. And multiple trials were done on hydroxychloroquine. And unfortunately, we did not see a benefit. In fact, I would say I have seen patients, especially older patients, whose heart rates have dripped down, drifted down and become slower in the presence of hydroxychloroquine. So it could potentially have negative effects too. And so, you know, I think it's very hard sometimes to battle preconceived notions or things people have heard, rumors, And at the beginning of the pandemic, this was something that even as physicians, we had our hopes on that this is an oral medication that will be able to treat this. But the evidence is conclusive. And if those who still have hopes for it, what I would say is that we all are looking for oral medications that will be able to treat this virus as an outpatient to prevent people from going to the hospital but hydroxychloroquine is just not it. And I strongly advise people as a physician to not take this medication for COVID-19. 
Again, if you have a question, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, earlier we talked about kids going back to school. Christina tweeted, you know, the current state guidance is that children do not need to quarantine following exposure as long as students are three feet apart and wearing masks or vaccinated. But for younger students unvaccinated, what scientific data supports this decision? And does that data take into account the Delta variant? So, you know, again, with this virus, we're going based on what we've seen in the past. And we went through an entire school year last year with kids who were masked. And what we found that was that with masked children in schools where educators are really good at doing their very best to enforce whatever guidance they are told. So I can say this from the perspective of having my husband, who is actually working in a school as well and was in a school this whole past year, that educators and particularly starting with the administrators down really are some of the best at enforcing whatever public health guidance we suggest. And so weighing the risks of potentially getting COVID versus the layered approach of improving ventilation and masking and distancing and educators being vaccinated and knowing that for uh, the education of our children and for their mental health, that being in school and not being quarantined for long periods of time when the risk has been exceedingly low, that weighing all of that, the balance favors allowing children to continue to remain in school based on the data that we have in the past. Now, as we know, the Delta variant was not present in the last year, and we have to be flexible and malleable when it comes to public health crisis. If we get more information that suggests otherwise, adjustments will have to be made. But with the information we have at this point in time, I'm very comfortable with those recommendations in terms of who needs to quarantine, when and how, given that we know all the layered approach of things that are being done in the school settings. And I think it's important for children to remain in school. Mm. But when we think about the school environment, Dr. Giutani, uh, many parents were able to keep their children home last year for remote school or parts of hybrid schedules. Uh, but this year, uh, there's no mandate. So um, there'll be, there may be more children in school, and there are positives to that. But again, thinking about masking or not being masked, uh, more kids in school, some school buildings, ventilation isn't great. Uh, is three feet distance going to be enough? So I think the evidence to date suggests that it will. But as I said, you know, I think that there will be some uh, evidence that will continue to arise as we go forward. Having said that, I think we've got increasing number of people that are eligible to get the vaccine, will be required to get the vaccine. And one of the things that's been also shown, particularly with the younger children, is that it is more often the adults that have brought in an exposure to COVID in the classroom. And with educators who are the primary adults that these children are exposed to being required to be vaccinated, it is one of the strengths, I think, to be able to say in this sort of layered approach of different things that we are doing to try to keep our children in school and keep them there safely, that these are various things that we have to our benefit this year around that we did not have last year. 
And, you know, I think that there are multiple, even private schools that were in full session with all students in the classroom last year. And they, there are multiple that had no cases of COVID. I actually know of an instance where in the school itself, there were no cases of COVID. And it was actually the kids who stayed at home and did remote school that got COVID. And I think that is just an interesting example because, you know, children need to be children. Families need to exist. And sometimes people let their guard down when they are not in structured environments. So that example, you know, actually drove home to me that, you know, just keeping your kids at home is not necessarily the safer thing because at the end of the day, people do need to do certain things. And that when you are in the controlled environment of a school, this is actually maybe one of the safer places to be and still have socialization and education going on. Again, you can ask a question of Dr. Manisha Jutani, who is the incoming commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, 888-720-9677. Phil's calling in. Phil, what's your question? Hi, doctor. Thank you for your information today. Uh, I had a comment on the uh, FDA approval and the trials uh, for the dosage for under 11. And I just wanted to say that uh, your uh, take on it, that we should all just be patient and, uh, uh, you know, wait for these trials to happen. I I wanted to say that the public has increasingly uh, frustrated with the FDA and their process. They just approves the vaccine that we've been all taking for a number of months. And and it would be great if we had a more transparent process. And if it's just a dosage, we, we know that that dosage is going to be found at some point. It would be great to have a sense of urgency and a sense of transparency as to how that's happening. It just seems like they're taking their sweet time. Thank you. Dr. Jutani. So thank you for that comment, Phil. You know, I think there are two things that we heard, um, you know, even in the quote that was shared earlier uh, this morning, which is that the Pfizer trial is probably the closest one to completion. So the FDA doesn't even have the data. I think, you know, in this particular situation, I hear your frustration. I think we all at some level are frustrated, you know, in the sense that the FDA did a great job of putting in this emergency use authorization mechanism so that vaccines were not just waiting for a final approval. Can you imagine if we had waited this long, how many people would have died if we didn't have emergency use authorization? So I do think that they were flexible and malleable and did adapt to the times by putting that mechanism in place in the midst of this pandemic. Having said that, it did take some time for this final approval to come through. Three and a half months for final approval from the time they received the data from Pfizer. Again, that's from the time they got the data is actually the shortest for a vaccine. But again, I hear you and I too am frustrated. Now for the children, I think that we are waiting for those trial results. As a trialist, as somebody who has done clinical trials myself, you know, you need to be really systematic and you need to be very confident in what you did in your study and you need to collect the data. And it's at that point, I have never submitted to the FDA, but in these particular trials, it's at that point when they can gather that data and then submit it to the FDA. And Pfizer, unfortunately, does not have that data yet. You know, in some ways, 
I'm, I'm happy to hear your frustration because it just shows how much on board so many people in this country are with vaccines. When vaccines were first coming out, the thought of vaccinating children is the thing that would scare people the most, right? So if you think about it, pregnant women, children, these are the populations where we say, you know, we're not going to do trials on them until we know that it's okay with others. And we've gotten to that point where we've shown that it is okay for others, for healthy adults to be able to, and even immunocompromised adults, to get these vaccines. And I'm encouraged by the fact that people are frustrated that children can't get them yet. And I feel that. I, I totally do. But we need to finish these trials. I know that Pfizer is close, but we need them to submit that data. And once they submit it, you know, I know the FDA feels the pressure to get this through its mechanisms, but we also want them to do it safely. We want them to do it in a way where they really check for all the issues related to safety in children, because these are our most vulnerable and precious members of our society. And we just want to make sure that it's done right. So I, it is a balance between protecting them and at the same time being able to get to that next stage of vaccinating them as well. Cheryl's calling in from Watertown. Cheryl, what's your question? Um, my question is, I realize we're talking about the Delta uh, variant and, um, you know, that the vaccine is at least somewhat effective against that variant. But what we're all starting to get concerned about is what we're hearing about the Lambda variant, mm-hmm. uh, especially since it's shown up in Houston. So we're all wondering what is going on in terms of vaccination preparation for that, especially since it seems to be even more highly transmissible than the Delta variant. Thank you, Cheryl. Dr. Dutani. So Cheryl, you've really hit on the crux of the challenge when it comes to any infectious disease management and particularly with viruses and their ability to mutate and continue to circulate. So, you know, right now it's Lambda, in the future it could be something else. We know that we are gonna be constantly battling whatever the new strain is of COVID. I mean, I think unfortunately, COVID is here to stay, but the good news is that we have the platform, we have the mechanism by which we know that vaccines can be developed. And these companies are keeping tabs on all these different variants that are emerging. And they have developed the mechanisms to be able to say, okay, let's see what these variants are and what tweaks might we need to make to the vaccine to be able to get a booster out in quick enough time to be able to vaccinate people should that come to be. And, you know, there were hypotheses. There was a New York City variant. There was a concern whether that was going to take off, but that really didn't. And we now see that Delta is the one that came from other parts of the world and has been the predominant one now. And this is what the companies are really on top of. And I believe that I have faith that we will be able to do that and that tracking what is coming in the months and years to come is going to be part of what we do with COVID to keep people protected. And if we need to get additional vaccines over time, that that will be possible. And I have faith that that is what's going to keep us safe. I mean, really, vaccines are our way of battling this particular virus, and we are so fortunate that the platform on which, with, particularly with these mRNA vaccines that have been so effective, 
And, you know, there will be more vaccines that may continue to come out over time. That's also possible. But the fact that these companies know how to adapt and adjust to be able to attack a potential variant that becomes predominant is very promising for the future. My guest today here on Where We Live, Dr. Manisha Jutani, Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health, effective September 20th. She's here to answer your questions about the pandemic again, the Delta variant and others. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm talking with Governor Lamont's nominee to lead the Connecticut Department of Public Health. Uh, she'll take that role September 30th, Dr. Manisha Jutani, an infectious disease specialist um, at Yale. If you have a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So we know that vaccine mandates are, are popping up uh, more and more. Um, when we think about the state vaccine mandate for employees and for uh, that would include also nursing home workers when we think about what happened in the pandemic dr jutani any concerns about there being worker shortages you know i think that that is a possibility but i'm very hopeful that our nursing home workers will recognize the importance of the incredible care that they provide to our most vulnerable but also the need to protect our most vulnerable you know, nursing home residents were true victims in this pandemic. Uh, they are captive in the places where they stay, and by and large, the virus was brought to them. And so getting them vaccinated first has been effective, but we've seen that, and this is what I anticipated was going to happen, that with the Delta variant, the vaccine drops in its effectiveness in the nursing home population and immunity does wane with time because antibodies that are generated by the vaccine are what are most protective. And so for our nursing home residents, you know, I think they'll be some of the first to get boosters. They're in our oldest age group and they are our most vulnerable and getting nursing home workers vaccinated is going to be so incredibly important to protect those patients and I am very hopeful that people who work in that setting, who are really doing God's work, taking care of these patients, will see the importance of the work they do and the, the need to protect these patients. Mm. You said that you're hopeful and it is possible we might see worker shortages in nursing homes with this mandate. So what are some steps uh, to uh, address this? Because this will be part of your job uh, come September 20th. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that we want to continue to reach out to people who are working in these facilities to be able to try to address whatever residual concerns they may have around vaccinations. And we will continue to work with the uh, organizations that are caring for these patients to find the safest way we can to try to take care of the group the best we can. You know, there have been multiple strategies um, pre-pandemic even, of trying to take care of patients in a variety of different 
settings, whether it be to try to keep people at home if that's possible, um, or utilize other resources that are available to maintain health, whether it be at home or assisted living or in other circumstances. And I think we're gonna have to build on what we know and what strengths we have to be able to keep our patients safe and find safe places for them to be cared for. Again, you're hearing Dr. Manisha Jutani, who's Governor Lamont's nominee to become Commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. Um, I wanna take a quick call, Monica from Middletown. Monica, go ahead. Oh, doesn't look like Monica's there anymore. But she wanted to mention that there are resources for pregnant women wanting info about COVID during pregnancy and also getting vaccinated. Can you address that? Because there have been questions and concerns. And unfortunately, we've heard of uh, cases uh, nationwide of pregnant women dying and also infants. This is definitely a vulnerable population. And we have now evidence that vaccination is very safe in pregnancy and it can be very safe for the infants as well. And I appreciate Monica's comment because there are multiple resources out there, Um, but I would certainly encourage pregnant women to talk with their doctors. Uh, You know, for every patient, there may be different calculations, but by and large, there is really very few reasons why somebody would be contraindicated to get a vaccine. And I think that for pregnant women, it is safe for them, and they're actually protecting their infant child as well in those early months, because obviously the child is not eligible for a vaccine. And by doing uh, this step, you're protecting yourself and your child. You know, we just have a few minutes left, about five minutes, Dr. Jutani, and I wanted to take time to maybe go over some of the disinformation that's out there because I, you know, you're the infectious disease specialist. When uh, we look back at this pandemic, hopefully uh, at some point, and, and they write the book about how this was handled, uh, disinformation, you know, the role that it plays in keeping people from taking steps that can save their life. And so I wanted to go over some things that people are hearing and seeing on social media and hoping that you address some of that. Uh, One is uh, if you're young, fit and healthy, your immune system can fight off the virus. No need for the vaccine. What would you tell someone? Unfortunately, not the case. And particularly with the Delta variant, we've seen younger and younger people who've been admitted to the hospital. It is true, of course, that younger people do fare better than older people. That would be accurate. But we also know that there are many younger people that have gone on to have long COVID, who have had symptoms such as loss of taste and smell for prolonged periods of time and not enjoying your morning coffee or food, it's really a terrible thing, quite frankly. And so I think there are things we can do to try to minimize those risks and vaccination is the way to do it. The other thing I would say is look at New York City. To go to a restaurant, you need to be vaccinated. To go work out, you need to be vaccinated. To go into entertainment venues, you need to be vaccinated. As a young person, those are the things you want to do most. So really capitalizing on bringing your life back to a way that you want to live it, it's going to need to be with vaccination. And I strongly encourage people to consider that. Here's another one. Uh, People believe, some believe that the COVID vaccine not worth the risk of inflammation of the heart muscle or myocarditis in teens and children. Uh, What does the data show? The data shows that COVID itself causes more inflammation of the heart muscle than the vaccine. So this is what I tell people. People often ask me, we don't know everything there is 
to know about the vaccine. And I would say you're right, we don't. But you know what? We also don't know everything there is to know about COVID. And the risks of COVID are far greater than the risks of the vaccine. So if I'm gonna take my chances with a virus that we don't know everything about yet versus a vaccine that we know enough about that I feel safe taking, I take my chances on the vaccine any day. Again, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, when we think about uh, the, the upcoming months, the colder months, uh, I know you were very clear to say, you know, we don't know what it's going to look like uh, in the next few weeks. But in terms of what the data shows uh, with how this virus circulates as people go indoors when it's cold, uh, what concerns you the most? You've pointed out all the things that make me concerned <laughs> that we are going to have some amount of circulating covid this winter. The other thing I'm concerned about is that we're seeing a rise in RSV, which is another virus that more commonly occurs in children. We had no flu last year, but this year with people socializing more and taking off their masks when they're socializing with each other, we may see more flu. So we may see a confluence of respiratory viruses that we saw very little of last winter. And that makes me concerned because it's gonna be important for people to get out there and get their flu shots because that is gonna be another factor that's gonna likely play a larger you know, factor this year in the uh, winter season. And so we don't know what's gonna happen. Last year we were worried about a lot of flu and we saw none because people did what they were supposed to do. Uh, and now we're gonna have to see what happens, but getting flu shots is gonna be critical to that. Some of these others, we don't have shots for them, but behavior is gonna be the thing that really dictates how much of that ends up spreading. Well, it's been a pleasure to hear from you, Dr. Manisha Jutani. Again, she's the incoming commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. That begins in mid-September, a uh, longtime infectious disease specialist at Yale. Dr. Manisha Jutani, uh, last words of encouragement for our listeners, many who are feeling that COVID fatigue. We all are feeling COVID fatigue. We want life to get back to normal. Hang in there. We will get through this. Once every human being on the face of earth is eligible for this vaccine and has the opportunity to take it, we will reach a steady state of what COVID is going to be in our lives. But we will get through this, get vaccinated and hang in there. Thank you for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Sujata Srinivasan produced today's show. Robin Doyne Aiken was on the phones today. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Tomorrow we hear from 5th District Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, who's running for re-election. We hope you join us.